All right, so let's uh, get into Nehemiah chapter 5, and uh, we're actually taking a second pass over what we saw last week. We're coming at it again, and now we're going to be looking a little bit below the surface. So let me begin by telling you, this is a story, an illustration I used to, I used to tell teens when I was a youth pastor. And I always kind of hoped it was true, but I never really could confirm it until this last week. I actually saw a video confirming this, and it was a, a video of a bushman who captured a monkey. And here's how he did it. There was a berm or a bank that was hardened, and he had dug a hole in it. And the hole was large enough for a monkey to fit its hand in, but not large enough for the clenched fist of the monkey to pull out of. And he went to the hole, and he began to put food down in the hole, and he began to then wait behind a tree, and the video camera is, is, uh, is recording all of this. And here comes the monkey. And the monkey sticks its hand in the hole and then grasped the food and made its fist and then could not pull it out. And here comes the hunter with a rope to capture, to catch that monkey. And when the monkey sensed the hunter coming, this is all on video, I couldn't believe it, the screaming and the crying of the monkey, and the monkey reached this hand around this wrist to try to pull it out even harder, and even going all the way upside down in a 360, upside down, trying to find an angle to pull its hand out. All it had to do was let go, and it could have come out easily. The monkey wouldn't. And here comes the hunter, slips the noose around its neck, walks it, now pulls its hand out, walks it over to the tree, ties it to the tree, throws some pieces of bread to, to calm the monkey down. That is what it looks like when we and our desires grab hold of what God does not want us to have and we will not let go. And here comes Satan, the hunter, to put his noose around our necks. And Christian brother, even though... The prison door has been set free by Christ. You're no longer in bondage to sin. Here comes our captor walking us back into the jail cell whose door never can close. And we sit there obediently. You know, temptation works. And I'm going to tell you how. By appealing to the desires that are already in your heart. Listen, I'm not tempted to smoke, and I'm not tempted to go out and get drunk, even though there are people in our church who are very much tempted by both. I'm severely tempted by other things. But the reason I'm not tempted to smoke is there's no desire in me to smoke. There is no desire to get drunk. I was in the store the other day, and I saw a generator... And a little thought goes through my mind. I wonder if I could steal this. <laughs> you know, to help people in our church that have no power. <laughs> and immediately the thought was expunged. But because I don't really want to steal anything. I've been stolen from. And I know what it feels like. It feels violating. I don't have a desire to steal. 
So little whispery temptations when the hunter comes and throws the little food down in the hole and wants me to slip my hand and grab it and not pull it out. That doesn't really happen to me in those three areas, smoking, getting drunk and stealing. It sure happens in a lot of other areas, though, in my life. We're tempted because there's desires in us that want what God does not want us to have. Or want in a measure that's not the measure that God is willing to give. And we reach for those baited hooks. We slip our hands into those holes because they promise fulfillment. They promise satisfaction. And all of a sudden, Satan gains the victory. You know, someone recently told me, one of my best friends, how he had struggled with horrible, I mean terrible, he explained, he shared with me what they were. They're horrible, horrible desires. Until finally, a few months ago, one day, it's like his desires just changed. I mean, he'd been praying about this for for years, 30, 40 years, and battled and failed and stuck his hand in and was caught over and over by Satan. And all of a sudden, one day his desires changed. And here came that familiar baited hook, that temptation. And all of a sudden, it's like, I don't want that anymore. I can say no now. I want what God is willing to give. You see, what God did was God rescued my friend by bringing new desires into his heart, taking old desires out. And when God gives you new desires, then you'll want what he wants. But friends, how many of us sit in prisons of sin? For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Listen, you know what that means, right? It's implying that though you've been set free in Christ, you can submit again. And your captor, our captor, can take us and he can lead us into the prison cell of enslavement and bondage. Even though the door will never shut, we can sit there as if it is, as if the shackles are on us, even though the locks have been broken. How many of us right now this morning, honestly, if you were sitting across a couch from God himself and he asked you, is your fist in the hole? And you might be trying to pull it out, but you're not willing to let go. Is your fist in the hole and are you getting walked back into the dungeon? What would you say to God whom you cannot lie to? The fact is, brother and sister, we are set free in Christ and we have the power of the Holy Spirit and he is training us, Titus says, to renounce ungodliness, to walk past those baited hooks and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. The very power of God through his spirit that lives in every Christian is teaching us to say no to sin and yes to godliness. So are you struggling with your hand in the opening? Listen, I'll I'll list a few. There is a danger in that. Because if I don't list yours, you feel like you're off the hook. No pun intended. 
So you've got to now engage and you've got to be the discipline of the student of God or the child of God, the student of the word. So maybe it's greed. Honestly, maybe it's materialism. Maybe that new technological wonder starts to build in your heart until you buy it. And then you're like, this is the greatest thing. And then all of a sudden the next version comes out and it builds again. Maybe it's that treadmill of materialism. Maybe it's worldliness. Maybe it's a fear that you cannot get over and is dominating your life. It's put you into bondage. Maybe it's a love for power. You like position. You like power over other people. Or maybe it's that unquenchable thirst for pleasure at the world's wells. You'll never get enough. You might be satisfied today, but you're going to be hungry again in a, in, by tomorrow. And you hear that hunter coming, but you cannot seem to let that sin go. You can't seem to overcome this. You hate it. In one hand, your, your spirit in you hates it, but your flesh craves it. How do you get free? How are you set free from that? How do you get your hand out of that hole? Before the hunter comes. That's what we're going to learn today. So listen, I know I'm speaking to a lot of us. And I know the word of God is speaking to a lot of us who are struggling with sin that has a hold over us. And we hate it in one hand and crave it in the other. But the message today is this. The gospel alone has the power to free you. It's only the gospel. And though you're not going to read the word gospel in Nehemiah 5, and you're not going to see the blood of Christ in Nehemiah 5, you're going to see Nehemiah preaching the good news. And you're going to watch it take this fractured nation and bring them back and walk them and their fists out of that hole. You know, last week we saw that the enemies, what the enemies of Israel that were surrounding them, what they could not do, their own people did. And that is to stop the work in the kingdom. You know that's what your enemies wants to do, wants to do, right? And then that's what he, that's what they want to do, Christian brother and sister. They want to make you so ineffective that you cannot do anything for God in the kingdom of Christ. They want to get you so preoccupied, they want to get me so saddled with sin, so doubting the gospel that we're literally worthless to the kingdom. And this is where they had become, this is where they had gotten to. There is no mention of the work on the wall in all of chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. They just weren't doing it. There was no work because they were, they were struck with disunity. You've got the wealthy Jews who were exploiting their poor brothers or profiting from their circumstances. You've got a group of Jews that... Then they didn't even own land and they're trying to buy grain because there's a famine. And you've got another group who has land, but the famine's under producing their crops. And so they're going to have to go into debt. They're going to have to take loans. And where are they getting their loan money? From their wealthy Jewish brothers. And those wealthy Jewish brothers were now taking a third group that the taxes of the, the king had to be paid. And if you can't pay your taxes, then I've got to come to you for a loan. And if I can't repay my loan because my crops won't grow, then I, you're, you can possess my land. Listen, what do you think what it would be like if you were there and all of a sudden you lose your home to your own Christian brothers and sisters? Your own Christian brothers and sisters refuse to give you mercy. 
They extract from you what they owe and they say, listen, if you can't pay it in cash, then I'm going to take your land, I'm going to take your home. And if you can't cover your debt with your land and your home, then guess what? I'm going to take your children. And they were now taking their children as their slaves. Can you imagine that, parents? I've got four kids. Matthew, Aaron, Carissa, and Andrew. And if I can't cover my loan to my own Christian brothers, then they take my land. And if my land won't cover it, then you've got my oldest son, Matthew, to now be your lifelong slave. And if Matthew won't cover it, here's Aaron. And if Aaron won't cover it, here's Carissa. And please don't take my last. I can't have no children. And they would take the last. Can you imagine that, parents? Now you know what's happening in Israel. This is God's people, the community of faith. And they are so disunified and they're crying out against one another and it reaches the ears of Nehemiah. There is selfishness, there's greed, there's a love of money, there's worldliness. There's a lot of people with their fists in the hole and they will not get them out. You know, Thomas Merton, long time ago, said it well. He said to consider persons and events and situations only in the light of their effect upon myself. In other words, to live self-centeredly, it's to live on the doorstep of hell. Almost as bad as a cell phone going off in the middle of my sermons. That's okay. Actually, you know what? That happened to me a while ago. I'm so afraid it's going to happen when I'm doing a funeral. So pray for me that I will not ever do that. What we're about to see in this passage is a picture of how the gospel works to bring people who are mired in sin out of sin and restore their unity and their love and their mercy. Here's what we're going to see. Look at the first one. The gospel produces remorse. The gospel produces remorse. You see, the aim of the gospel, we'll read it in a minute, the aim of the gospel is to drive us to our great need for help in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. This is Nehemiah 5. I brought charges. This is Nehemiah. He's preaching the good news. And listen, look at me for a second. Sometimes the good news is preceded by the bad news. And listen, you can't have good news without bad news. It's the bad news that makes the good news so good. The charges that the word of God lays against our souls drives us to remorse. They drive us to the word of God, to Jesus Christ himself. It's what the law of God's job is. You know that, right? The law of God, the word of God, the scriptures. Listen, here's how it works. Picture it's a mirror. And that mirror is aiming upward to reflect who Christ is, his perfection and his glory and his impeccable holiness, unstained by sin. Now listen, and when you study the word of God, that mirror now looks to you. And you get to see, like I get to see, my imperfections, the stains on my soul from sin, and the differences between God's holiness and my sinfulness is so stark that it drives us to the, the person who can forgive us. When God gave all of those slaves of Israel who had just escaped from Egypt, two million slaves, 
now struggling to live in freedom, when he gave them the Ten Commandments in the law of God, the civil, the ceremonial, the law of God, the moral law of God, and he put it down upon them. Listen, they had no hopes of keeping that law. The law was to show them the holiness and the perfection of God and it was to show them their imperfection and their need of mercy and it was to drive them in faith to the tabernacle and to the, te to the temple for something whose blood would be shed to forgive their sins. That's why the law was to bring us to Christ, Galatians 3 says. The gospel's intent is to produce in us remorse or what the Bible calls conviction or brokenness. And listen, here's how it does it. It lays charges against us. And we don't like that. Don't fight the charges of God. It is the mercy of God to show us where we're wrong. And it's the mercy of God to drive us into brokenness. It's the mercy of God to create and produce in us this godly grief that the text in 2 Corinthians talks about. You know, I'll never forget. I'll read that to you in a minute. I'll never forget the person almost a year and a half ago who sat in my office. To my knowledge, this is the only one who's ever done this. His life is miserable. It's falling apart. God is obviously not blessing him. He's not under the favor of God. And he begins to tell me all these things that are going on in his life. So I begin to probe a little bit. And it wasn't long until I discover he's got an, an addiction to sin. I said, you're asking me to pray that God will... Show his favor to you, but you've got an addiction in your life. I'll pray and I'll help you get free from that addiction. Would you like help? He goes, no. No, not really. I like this. I've never had anybody tell me that before. That was a first. I thought I'd kind of been through everything as a pastor almost 20 years. First time anybody's ever said that. I said, I said, for clarity, I said, you're telling me that your life is falling apart. You're in a raging addiction and you don't want help to get free from that so that God will give you his full blessings. He goes, well, I don't really want to stop what I'm doing. And I'm not willing to do that. Listen, the, the job of the gospel is to bring my friend in that office to a point of utter brokenness. Listen, he was miserable, but not broken. They go in opposite directions. See, misery is when you don't like your circumstances and you blame other people for them. Brokenness is when you don't like your circumstances and you acknowledge that the blame is yours and you appeal for God to God for help. See, bro, don't be fooled just because there is worldly sorrow. And this is what Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Here's the contrast. Here's misery. Worldly grief produces death. So parents, how do you know if your child, whether he's young, she's young or old, has godly grief or worldly grief? How do you know if your spouse 
is exhibiting godly grief or worldly grief? How do you know if your friend who is caught in sin is producing now godly grief or worldly grief? Well, Paul tells us there's seven signs. Your outline tells you there's five. So you might have to flip it over. There's seven of them. There's seven signs. Listen, I'm going to teach you these for your discernment, for your wisdom. This is how when you're ministering to other people whom God is bringing to brokenness, this is how you partner with God in order to bring that person to a point where they will repent. Here's what it looks like. Number one, earnestness. You can see the text behind me. Earnestness. Paul says the first sign of godly grief that will lead to repentance is that there is an earnestness in them, which means that they are quick to make the change and they're quick to mend their ways. They don't need to think about it. They don't need to contemplate. They don't need time to consider. They'll never tell you when godly grief is present that they'll deal with this sin later. They're ready to deal with it now. They want out of it now. They want their fist gone now, and they want the captor to not get them. Earnestness is not indifference. It's not complacency to sin. It's serious. It's urgent. I've got to deal with it now. Earnestness is a first sign of godly grief. Now listen, do you know somebody? who is caught up in sin and God is bringing the gospel of charges to bear against them and driving them to godly grief. Listen, you won't repent until there's godly grief. You might make superficial changes, but you can't transform at the heart. How do you know? Well, here's the first one, earnestness. Here's the second one. There's an eagerness to clear yourselves. See, godly sorrow, godly grief produces in us the strong desire to make the situation right. You want your name cleared. You want your ways different. You want to clear yourself in the eyes of God, in the sight of God. You don't want conviction anymore. You don't want God to see sin in you. You want him to see righteousness. There's an eagerness to clear your record in godly grief. And there's another one, there's indignation. Indignation is a heart that's filled with godly anger. Misery is, is anger to other people. Brokenness is anger where? Right to yourself. It hates the sin that is in you. You cannot have godly grief and love the sin. They cannot coexist. Indignation is that holy displeasure. It is personally directed outrage that I've brought shame on myself, I've hurt other people, and listen, I've offended God. The fourth sign is fear. When the gospel is laying charges against our hearts, it produces the fear of God in us. It's the realization of this. Now listen, this is probably the most insightful thing I can tell you of godly grief. It's the realization that once again, we have sinned most centrally and chiefly against God. Against you, you only, David said, have I sinned and done what, what is evil in your sight. Well, Pastor Tim, I don't really know if I agree with that. I mean, I was driving on Route 78 and that guy jammed right in front of me and almost caused an accident. He's wrong. It's right for me to, to do what I did. We'll leave it at that. I didn't sin against God. If I sinned, it was against that person. Listen, let me ask you something. Who set the holy, perfect example for you in 1 Peter 3? 
or 1 Peter 2, who when charges came against him and he, they, were, they spit on him and they reviled him and they nailed our Lord and Savior to the tree. He did not revile in turn. He did not react in kind. He entrusted himself to the Father. That's perfection. That's what we're called to. Anything below that, you've sinned. You missed the mark. That's sin. Did you get angry at that person? I'm going to teach him a lesson. Then you missed the mark. Was there mercy new every morning? Was there patience? Was there forbearance? Was there love? Was there a shift to God? God help me love that person even though I'll never meet him again, even though he cut right in front of me, he did what was wrong. Help me show mercy. Mercy's only for when people don't deserve it. If you deserve mercy, it's not called mercy. See, every sin that we will ever commit, when you dig down to its root, the very the ball of the plant, every sin is chiefly against God. Isn't that sobering? That impatience you had with your spouse this past week? That anger that's not righteous at one of your kids? That selfishness that ran through your heart and created that behavior that slipped your fist, your hand into that hole? That reaching for that forbidden fruit of pleasure that God said, trust me, I'll give you more pleasure, just don't grab it from the world. All of that is against God. God, I don't want your way, I want my way. I don't want you sitting on the throne right now. I want the throne, so either move over or get off because I'm going to rule my kingdom. Every single sin at the very base of it is against God. And then there's a fifth sign of godly grief. It's a longing. How beautiful it is when God gives us the longing to want freedom to, from sin, to be able to say no to what is ruining our lives, to no longer desire what it was that we were desiring, to have new desires raging in our hearts. And there's a zeal, number six. It's the gospel that produces in us. It's that spirit to fight Listen, I'm not going to do what Proverbs says and fall and just stay down and give up. I'm going to get up and I'm going to fight. I'm going to get into the battle. I'm going to have a holy effort to get rid of this sin in my heart. I'm going to grow in the disciplines of the Lord. Listen, if you've got somebody that you love that is exhibiting godly grief, they're going to battle. They're going to fight. They're going to ask you to help. It's a gospel-produced determination to obey God empowered by His grace. And then there's a seventh and final sign. It's punishment. See, the gospel reminds us there can be no forgiveness. Matthew mentioned it this morning. Without the shedding of blood. Listen, every single time I sin, it was piled into Christ's account. And it was poured onto Him at the cross. He had to atone for every one of my sins. And when the gospel lays charges against my soul and reminds me what you did was put on your Lord and Savior. It begins to drive me away from misery and right into godly grief that was going to lead to repentance and a change of mind. Friends, godly sorrow, remorse is the soul awakening to the horror of our personal sin and it has the power to move us to what we see next in Nehemiah. It's where the gospel calls now for repentance. It just drove us to remorse. It drove us to remorse. Now it's leading us to repentance, 
to brokenness. It's what Jesus talked about in his great sermon in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Listen, the poor in spirit, if you are a poor in spirit person, then you, are, you know that you are morally bankrupt. You have nothing in you that can barter for God's mercy. You have nothing that deserves God's mercy. You are utterly without capital in front of God. You're poor in spirit. You're broken. You're remorseful. You're filled with godly grief. And it's only broken people. Their reach for God's mercy found at the cross. And it's only broken people that will really truly repent. Listen, if you've got somebody in your life that you're, you're trying to discern, is this godly grief or is this worldly grief? Is this misery or is this brokenness? Listen, if they're defending themselves and if they're rationalizing and if they're justifying and if they're blaming other people, listen, that's your biggest clue. It's worldly grief and it's not going to lead anywhere good. But blessed are the poor in spirit because now they will repent. And repentance is an about face. It's a change of mind that results in the right behavior. Listen, I'm going this way in my sin. Repentance is, why would I do that? That's going to lead to sorrow. It's going to lead to death. It will be put onto my Savior's account. He had to die for that if I follow this course. It's having a change of mind, new desires, and moving in the opposite direction. Return to them, verse 11. Here's the opposite direction. Return to them this very day. Their fields, vineyards, orchards, Houses, money, grain, wine, oil that you have been exacting from them. Do you see the bipolarness of this? Do you see the contrast? Return is the opposite of exacting. You were taking from the poor people. Now turn around and give it back. And they can do that now because the gospel has laid charges against their souls and brought them to brokenness. Now, you're going to notice at the end of this, I spent the majority of this sermon on the first point. The gospel leads to remorse. It produces remorse. Listen, you can't come together. The community of God can't heal until people repent. And you can't repent until you're broken. And you won't be broken until the gospel lays charges against your souls and shows you how sorrowful you are. See, these people needed to repent in Israel. But let me ask you a question. What do you and what do I need to repent of here today? If you're like me, when a pastor asks that question, all of a sudden static comes into my mind. Either there's so many things that I can't seem to focus on one, or there's just a war of thoughts going on in my mind. Listen, find that little thread that God's pulling right now in your life. Because he's pulling something. What's he pulling? And you'll see at the end of this sermon on your outline, there's a question. What is God speaking to you today? That's the thread. What is it that you and what is it that I need to repent of here today? Listen, is anyone in your life, outside of your willingness to show love and mercy to. Be brave. Be courageous. Do what God commanded Job. Brace yourself like a man. 
Is there anybody that you are bitter and unforgiving toward and you're not, you've not been willing to extend mercy? Listen, that's your thread. And you can't expect God to give you his full favor with that in your heart. He will bring you charges. He will lay them at your heart. He will drive you eventually into brokenness and godly grief so that you can repent and begin to love the way he's loved you. Do you really view, here's another question, do you really view everything you possess as really God's? He hasn't given them to you to own. There are no owners in the kingdom of God. There's only one. It's God himself. He's given you things to steward and to manage, to meet your needs and the needs of others. Listen, the monies that you have, they're not yours. They're not mine. You're never going to hear me say you've got to bring them all into the church. You will hear me say you've got to give, if you're going to give biblically, cheerfully, and generously into the church, those who are feeding and shepherding your soul. Yes, you should be giving faithfully here. But listen, I'll never tell you bring all your gifts into the church. You've got people around you that need. And there's got to be a freedom of your spirit when God says in your at work, this person was out of power, they lost all their food, and God puts in your heart, go buy them a gift certificate from Giant. There's got to be a remembrance. It's your money, God. Are you stewarding me in that direction? Are you, do you need to be set free from that? Listen, there's a lot of people that have their money, their, their fists in the hole around their money, and they won't let it go to pull their hand out. And here comes Satan to sit them in a jail cell. That's how it works. Is there anything in your life that you have slipped your neck back under and all of a sudden you're in a bondage and a stronghold of sin you cannot get out of? Is there a habit in your life you know God's not pleased with it? Maybe it's gossip, maybe it's slander, maybe it's what seems to be the ever-present pornography for men and now growingly for women. Is there something in which you've slipped your neck back under and you can't seem to get your hand out of the hole? Listen, the gospel can free you. The gospel can free me. And it will do so as it leads and lays charges against your soul and leads you into remorse that will produce repentance in you so that you can now get to the third part. And you see it in verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. This is what the gospel does. It moves us to restoration. It moves us to restore. We'll set the slaves free, these wealthy people said. We'll give them back their fields. We'll loan without interest. We won't exploit. We won't exact. We won't take from those who are struggling. In short, we're going to show mercy and we're going to show love. And when they do that, listen, here's what's going to happen. This is what the gospel will do. It's going to restore to them their joy. It's going to restore to God's people their unity. It's going to bring them back into effectiveness of building the wall, the mission that they were on. This is what David says in Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then underline the word then. Then I will get on mission. 
Then I'll get to the fish gate, if you remember that part of the series. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. I'm no good, God. I'm no good because I've sinned. I've got to be remorseful of that. I've got to repent of that. And then you're going to restore me, and you're going to use me again for your purposes. Forgiven people are restored to the mission of rebuilding others as we commit ourselves to God. And then you see the fourth movement of the gospel. First, it's led you to remorse, and then it brings you to repentance, and it restores the joy and gets you back on mission. And then all of a sudden, the gospel calls us to recommit. Look at verse 12 again. Look what these nobles and these officials said. We will do as you say. That's recommitment. You know, Nehemiah is pretty smart. There's a reason he's fast becoming one of my favorite godly historical figures. Here's why he's so smart. And by the way, I'm not nearly as smart, but I did learn this lesson as a youth pastor because I would come home from retreats and kids would come up and they would be having been brought to remorse and led to repentance and recommitment to God. And they'd say to me, here, take all my CDs of explicit lyrics and throw them away. I had teens come up to my office, take my cigarettes, and we're going to go down right now. We're going to flush them in the toilet. I did that so often. You know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. And all the while I'm going to myself, yes, you are. You probably will. And Nehemiah is saying to these nobles and officials, we will do as you say. And he's saying, no, you're probably not. Because it's easy to make a promise to me. And break it. Listen, you can come into my office and you can make a promise to me. And I don't really put a lot into that. And I probably will do to you what Nehemiah so wonderfully did to them. And he says, listen, it's not about making a promise to me in front of everybody. It's about you making a promise to God. Bring me the priests. Because the priests were the bridge builders who connected God's hand to the hands of the people. You're going to make a promise. It's going to be an oath to God. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. It's a promise to God. It's not a promise to Nehemiah. And then Nehemiah does what every pastor and every brother and sister in Christ ought to do for the person who's promising them. You need to attach the blessings and the cursings. If you hold your oath to God, he will bless you. If you break your oath to God, expect his discipline. And look what it says in verse 13. I also shook out the fold of my garment. That's a pocket that's sewn into your robe. And it shakes out the dirt and the dust and the lint. And he says, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. He's saying, you're going to make a promise to God. If you don't sustain it and if you don't keep it, may God shake you out of Israel. Wow. There's a reason Ecclesiastes says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. I had somebody recently struggling with sin for years and years, the same sin, could not defeat it. 
Finally, God in holy indignation, remember seven signs of godly grief, in holy indignation, he came to me and he said, I made a vow to God. I said, did you make it lightly? Absolutely not. I made that vow knowing who I was vowing to, that I will not do this again. And to my knowledge, he's not ever done it again. There is power in an oath when you understand to whom it is, it is you're making it and you understand the ramifications if you do not sustain it. And then finally, the gospel calls us to regroup. Here it is. The gospel called us to remorse. It led us to repentance. It instilled in us a desire to recommit to God. Or to, uh, to rather, um, what, was it? what was the third one? I can't even remember. Thank you. Somebody else ought to be preaching this. A desire to restore, get back on mission, a, a sense of recommitment to God. And finally, the gospel calls us to recommit or to uh, regroup. And here's what it says in verse 13. And all the assemblies said, Amen. Now listen, did you notice anything on this? Who was Nehemiah laying charges against? The wealthy nobles and officials he brought them before the great assembly it says all the people he lays charges against them it brings them to remorse it drives them to repentance it helps them to recommit it helps to restore them and now nehemiah it says that all the assembly said amen all the assembly said so be it lord what you have said let it happen that's what the word amen means why all of the assembly he was laying charges against the wealthy? Can I tell you why? If you didn't get anything else in this sermon, at least try to get this one. What you do affects me and what I do affects you. What you do affects the others. We are a community. If there is a group in our church, and we used to have it years ago, who came to our board and said, listen, we don't like this church anymore and we don't like this leadership anymore, but we want to be able to stay in this church because we helped build it and we helped not build it, but we helped remodel it. We helped buy it. So we'd like to have our own church services in the afternoon. I'm sitting in a board meeting when this all came in. This is probably 10 years ago. And one of the board members was the leader. We put that board member under discipline, removed him from leadership, and then walked with him into restoration and brought him back into full fellowship. That's how it works. Because you affect you. We affect each other. And if there's a group creating disunity, it affects the whole church. So when there's a group repenting, the whole church repents and we come around in recommitment. The gospel drives us to regroup, to get back into the community, to get back into unity. These wealthy who would not walk in the fear of the Lord. Now, look what it says. They're praising the Lord along with the rest of the people. Did you see that? They're worshiping. They wouldn't walk in the fear of the Lord a few verses earlier. Now the gospel has done its job and now they're worshiping and they're praising and the people did as they had promised. All the people recommitted. All the people regrouped. And it leads me to what I think might be one of the most frustrating things I've ever experienced as a pastor. 
It's those Christians who really think they can live the Christian life on their own. Despite the contrary in the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, that cries out, you cannot do it, it will not work. It's never meant to work as a solitary Christian. You need your brothers and sisters, your brothers and sisters need you. It's a call to transparent, redemptive fellowship. You know, I've never, I've never met a Christian yet who has a close walk with Jesus Christ and at the same time cuts himself or herself off from the community. In fact, the opposite is true. When you suffer, you tend to pull away, right? And when you go through difficulty, you tend to pull away. Don't you know that's exactly what Satan wants? Because you don't have the power. I don't have the power to get your hand out of the hole on your own. If the gospel is working, it will drive you to sorrow. It will lead you to repentance. It will bring restoration. It will allow a recommitment. And listen, it will always, its trajectory is always to put you back into the community of faith. Where you live in fellowship with brothers and sisters. We are saved by the power of the gospel. But what a lot of us forget is we're being saved by that same power. We're still being saved by the power of the gospel. That gospel is still working righteousness in us. And every day the faith-sustaining, transforming power of the gospel is at work. Listen, when you've got your hand in that hole and you're clenching the fist that you cannot seem to let go, the, the sin that you're unable to let go of, and that hunter is coming to take you into bondage, the gospel is going to work. The gospel is going to work. And the way the gospel will work, it will drive you into sorrow. Don't fight it. Let the charges come. And realize it's the gavel of our judge who loves us that's pronouncing us guilty. And let it lead us to a change of mind, to new desires, and restore us to effective missional living to where we serve our God and worship him and recommit to live our lives for his glory and regroup and strengthen one another, carry one another's burdens, exhort one another even more as the day is approaching, confess your sins to one another, encourage one another. They go on and on Old Testament and new. And what you'll find is a life filled with power and a heart filled with new desires that no longer to appeal to the bait that Satan brings your way. And you can live free and effective to the glory of God. Amen? That's the way of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Nehemiah. Lord, let us learn. Let us profit from this. Lord, let us be the people of God that love the gospel and realize its power. Father, bring that gospel to bear against my heart and against our hearts. And thank you that it will come in your mercy and in your grace. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.